You're listening to Shep Life with 1FM's Terry Cowley. Pat Moran. Good morning, Pat. Good morning, Terry. Come a bit closer to and the good mic. Good morning to the, to the listeners too. And I know you are one of our I am. very loyal listeners, yes. so thank you for that, Pat. Yes. Now, why did you choose that song, Remember When? It is a beautiful, nostalgic song, isn't it? Yes, yes. I think particularly um, because it reminds me of my journey. I think that's my journey. And I think it will remind a lot of people that idea of when you're young and you have just no concept of... But you're you're the same person. I think that's what, as young people, we can't know. But what we know when we get older is that you are actually the same person. I mean, some of the, you know, we look different and we maybe think different, but yeah, all those memories and hopes and dreams are are still there. They're still there. It doesn't matter how old you are, does it? No, and it's wonderful to have those memories and to be able to carry on with them too in my life, throughout my life. I don't think there's been a lot changed about me. Yeah. Personally, only I know myself a lot better, thank goodness. (laughs) It's a journey. It's a journey. Now, I thought with Pat, uh, with you, Pat, we might actually start at the beginning because you know quite a lot about your ancestors and there's a really interesting story there. Um, it starts with your great-grandparents in Scotland and Ireland um, and the fever ship of mm. 1852, which mm. some people may have heard about the fever ship. It's, it's a bit um, infamous really now, isn't it? Mm. So, so tell us about the fever ship. Well, um, my great-grandparents, actually I'm fourth, fourth, uh, fourth generation Australian. Um, they were from Scotland and Ireland, but I'm going to talk mainly about the Morrison clan from Scotland, from the Isle of Skye and Inverness area, um, because they're the ones that I have the wonderful history of. And um, they were crofters over there in the early days, which is shepherds really, I think. Um, And there were a terrible lot of troubles, as people would have read about, I think, um, in both Ireland and Scotland. And in Scotland, there was a lot of clearances and a lot of them were in the form of burnouts too. Unfortunately, a lot of people were burnt out off their properties. And um, my grandparents... um, my great-grandparent was only 10 um, when it, that all started and was 20 when he emigrated with the help of... They they had a very strong Presbyterian um, religion and they were, the two, um, Margaret McPherson was his bride. Um, he was 21, she was 20, but prior to that they were married in the Presbyterian church over there and then um, uh, local authorities and church people went to London to beg for help, for support, because the people were destitute. They said these both of my great-grandparents were in destitute con- conditions for quite a while. And um, anyway, he they managed to get support from the British government to emigrate to Australia. And, of course, they came on this infamous journey uh, Ticonderoga from uh, Scotland down to, I think it was Liverpool, um, that area anyway down there, and they got on this sailboat. And to me, we've got drawings of it, and to my mind, you'd wonder how they'd fit the 800 or 900 people on there and including the doctors. Um, And, you know, 
the their staff, I guess. The, the I guess they just pack, packed them in like sardines. Yes, Pat. yes. Terrible business. Anyway, quite a lot died and it was from typhoid and scar- scarlet fever on the voyage. They left there in August and they um, got into Port Phillip Bay on uh, in November, early November. And when the word got out that there were deaths on board and there were people sick still, they wouldn't allow them to dock there. So they set up a quarantine at Portsea, now as we know it as Portsea, further on around the bay, and they set up the first quarantine station for Australia and off-boarded them there. Well, my great-grandparents were on there and I just feel so fortunate that I'm a fourth-generation Australian now because, I mean, they survived. Did they get sick, do you know? Oh, um, no, they didn't get sick even, I don't think, from Mm -hmm. what we're told anyway from history. But they were off there and, of course, they've set up this memorial down there now and it's got the names of the survivors on there and I believe my... I haven't been able to get there yet, but I plan to. They've got this place set off, off um, back of back from Portsea itself, the township, the bay. And, uh, yes, yeah, so I'm looking forward to perhaps catching up with that in the near future when we get out of this COVID troubles that we've got. But uh, anyway, they came and the first child that they had of 10 was born at the top of Collins Street in a tent, they had a camp. Collins Street's one of our very elite streets in Melbourne, in the city of Melbourne. And uh, she, um, the first girl, Sarah, was born there in a camp there. Not long after that, they got a settlement place, separation settlement it was called, and it was in Yanyin, which is down where the big Yanyin Reservoir that supplies Melbourne with a lot of the water is. And... Um, set up there and they were on a property there and there's a story I didn't have that in my notes that I sent to Terry but my great-grandmother was there on her own one day Sandy was down the road I think at the Rose Shamrock and Thistle in Preston and he'd gone down there for a drink and Sandy was called too and she was home on her own and in through through her property came the Ned Kelly gang and they stole her roan horse and a lot, she was short, shortish lady, you know, but these eight, ten kids, I think, no, two, two had died, but she had eight there. And anyway, she stood up to them when they came back through again and she said, when you came through here last time, you took my roan horse. And I believe story tells us that she did get it back. She stood up to them. Wow, what an amazing story. story. So maybe there was some some honour among thieves, as they say. Yes, that's right. So um, where do your parents fit into this? My parents, um, one of their children was Donald, the last of their family of ten, and he is my grandfather and the father of my father. (laughs) And they were the uh, grandparents of my um, parents. I didn't say too much about the Ticonderoga though. There have been books written about it. Yeah, if you want to look it up, it's called The Fever Ship. The Fever Ship, Mm. yes. There have been books and there have also been plays staged in the local area. A couple of years back, um, they're just very short plays, but um, 
yes, very interesting. If you wanted to Google it even, you'd find a lot about that. But we yeah. don't want to uh, talk so much about yeah. it that we don't no. actually get to talk about you, Pat, because, yeah. of yeah. course, you're our subject. Yeah. Your parents, John and Myra, were married in 1930 and you were born in 1940? That's correct, yes. And you had two older brothers and they were fruit and vegetable shop owners. They were, yes. So I was born in a hospital in Murrumbina but brought back to this place in Warrigal Road, Oakley, and it, we had premises above it and behind it. And so that's where I was for 10 years of my early days and I can very much remember all of it because it was just different, yeah, really different. In ma- ma- my, go on, sorry. My brothers were older and they had a lot to do with delivering some um, boxes of fruit and veg. On, on the, the handlebars, handlebars of their bicycles. Bikes, yeah. That's a great memory. And then um, I can remember polishing the apples and I won't tell you how. No, I was going to ask you. Does it look, let let me put it this way, it would not be a COVID safe practice? Certainly not. (laughs) And health practice wise, no, certainly not. It wouldn't Mm. be. But he had a lovely, they had a beautiful shop. And very shiny apples. Very shiny apples. How many grandkids have you got now? I've got 14. And how many, and and some great-grandkids? Two stepchildren. Uh, Three. Three great-grandchildren and 14 grandchildren. Oh, I've got five children. Yes. (laughs) Did I say 14? No. No, no, no. no. 14 grandchildren, five children. children. And they're all adult now between, um, oh, nearly nearly 59 and um, 49. And you had your your landmark, your significant... uh, 80th this year. Oh, I did. So we call you an octogenarian now, don't we? Yes, I am that. Yes, I am that. And it was a really most unusual year to have it. Yes. To have that I know that you couldn't uh, celebrate as you yeah. had planned, but yeah. you'll get there. You'll get there. Yeah. It'll happen. Um, and you also had to um, endure the um, heartbreak of having a stillborn child. Yes, we certainly did. And this is the week, the National Week of. of um, Infant death, I think it's called. Um, I know that. And I, I, I just, you know, you can remember all of it quite specifically. And it's not a nice journey to, to think about. It was terrible because it was 1971. Things were much, much different then. So back then there wouldn't have been scans or anything like that, would no. there? No, there weren't scans. In fact, they only had one uh, little machine that they put on, on the stomach when I was in, actually in the birthing room and that was a new thing to hear the heartbeat Mm -hmm. and that's when they discovered that the baby was in trouble. So, you know, the whole story is really rather grim and sad but I've written it, I've written it down and two of my oldest children remember it quite well too. They were very... And they talk about it. Every August we all have a little bit to say to one another about that, Yes. Is that when he or she was born? Uh, with a, a son, yes. It uh, was a fourth boy, actually. I had three sons first and then a daughter three and a half years after that, which was a lovely thing to happen. And then um, Keith came along about two and a half years after Julie and I had problems pretty much with through the pregnancy, but never that was a totally unexpected happening, you know, and it was I know now the results of it, and it was he came down on the cord actually and cut off his oxygen supply. But anyway, you know it's there forever, and it was here at the GV hospital. Um, Julie was born there 
the, the two and a half years before and then Keith came along with the same doctor and attending a gynaecologist by then and no, it, it was terrible. Look, I'd like to just say this. There was an article in the paper yesterday about a young couple in Geelong who'd had a similar experience at 32 weeks. And they have, they put up a, a, a fundraising idea. Yes, I saw that, yeah. And they raised more than they had for a cot for stillborn bubs to be put in so that you can have time with them. Now, I think that was just a tremendous thing to do, to give not only one but two and one to our hospital. It, it's just wonderful for me to read things like that, you know. Because do, you think, do you think we handle it a lot better these days? Oh, I'm sure they do because I've had friends that have had stillborn um, in their families and some one great grandmother too and she was able to go up and see the bub and all that sort of thing but were no, you, i were, think it's wonderful were you given time with keith no not at all mm. i didn't even see him my husband did but i didn't see him Gee. he was whisked away and <laughs> but had a big impact on you and you went on to adopt after that we did do that yes um we did do that about a couple of oh well we we had always wanted about six, you know. Yep. My husband was one of nine and I was one of three. And uh, we worked that out that we thought we might like six. And so it wasn't to replace Keith by any means because we just thought we can do this because we'd done a little bit of fostering before that as well, you know. And um, anyway, along came our last girl. And she was five when she came because she was part of a special needs adoption program in Melbourne. And um, they came to us and said, well, we've all got our heads together, the social workers, and we'd had all the interviewing and everything, and our family had too. And so along she came. She came at Christmas 1976, and she's never gone from us. So she's been with us a long time now. She's 49. Wow. We've talked about... Your husband, but we haven't really talked about Bernie much. Tell me about Bernie because oh, he was a, he a was, big presence around these parts. Yes, he was. He, but he was um, he was a self-employed plumber when I met him, and me at eighteen, and him for an older man, four years older. Oh, and um, <laughs> cradle snatcher. Yes, so <laughs> and he was at the last year of his national service training at that time, and I met him at the Heidelberg Town Hall at a, at a dance and. Um, I mean, it sounds like young, really, but we were dancing from about 14, really, square dancing and all sorts of types of dancing, you know. So I had plenty of social life and I had a few fellows around, you know, interested, but uh, we just sort of fell. We knew we knew we were right for one another and it went from there. So married two years from the day that we were married. So uh, we ni- met. 1960 yeah. you got yeah, married? yeah. Two years from the day that we met, we were married, and that was the 12th of November. And you moved around a bit? Oh, we did quite Um, a bit in the early days because there was a credit squeeze come recession of the banks and it was very difficult to have any money. We just had John, who was about six months when that happened, living behind a shoe shop in High Street, Preston, and him having his trucks at his mother's place, his utes and things. But anyway, um, the upshot of it was he thought, well, we're 
starting a family, we've got to do something about this. So he tended for the country and that was our move to the country. We moved to Tarelgan in 62 for sewerage contracting that he tended for and won and we had a year there in um, Tarelgan. We had another son there in um, 18 months later in the hospital there. We were over, going over the hills to Yarram for the second year of contracting of sewerage contracting and we nearly lost Anthony. So he, um, that was a terribly sad time for us at that time too. That was in 1963. So um, so he wasn't breathing and you thought you'd lost no, him? No, my mother-in-law was staying, was helping us out with the move and she went into the bedroom and she came out and she was a mother of nine and very laid back sort of a lady, not a panicky person. She just said to me, oh, should he be lying on his back? He doesn't look terribly good, Pat. So I wandered in. This is about quarter to nine. And sure enough, he he wasn't looking well at all. So we'd seen the blue light at the hospital, the bush hospital. And um, we just got into the ute and up we went. And we went to the doctor's surgery, which was next door. We'd, somehow there was a light there too, you know. And um, pulled up to him and he said, oh, you know, I won't say what he said, but he was a terrific fellow. And uh, he said, look, come on, I'll bring the oxygen bottle. Um, you carry the bub, I'll t- carry the oxygen bottle and you drive us, Bernie, across just to the... And he sang out to all of them there and said, please come straight away, straight away, you know, the blue call or whatever they do. Anyway, we sat there, a couple of young ones, you know, me 23 and Bernie four years older and we sat out there and wrung our hands, you know, and anyway, after some time, quite considerable time, seemed hours, out came Dr Jones and he said we were just bloody lucky. Mm-hmm. We saved him. And just he said at the time, just in time that it would have been considered a, a cot death, mm-hmm. a sudden death, you know. But um, anyway, he's grown up to be an associate professor now. So he was meant for things too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We might move on to more current things. You you uh, worked a lot in family services. You volunteered for so many different groups, been involved with the hospital. Maybe just cover a few highlights of your community work, Pat. Mm. I think uh, I changed such a lot when I started family support work in 1979 at the age of 39 and that had a very um, strong bearing on the way I am now because I've got a passion for families and bringing them into the best of their ability because quite a lot of disadvantage around here and I still work with um, pregnancy support. I have been with them for 20 years now and they do wonderful work around here. They've been around for quite a long time since 1975 um, but they're, they're doing wonderful work at the moment um, and I still belong to that as a volunteer. But um, that gave me an insight into how things work. Sociology. I went back to mature age study and learnt a lot about sociology, politics and, and journalism, I was just saying to Terry before. But um, it's given me such an insight into things Certainly my period of time at the hospital, on the board of the hospital, gave me an insight into the need for good public health and that's what we get from the GV. It's absolutely wonderful in my eyes and um, 
I was certainly pleased to see the development as it is now. It's um, completed the stage one and it's absolutely magnificent. When we can get going again and get it staffed, etc., it'll be terrific. You've also taken a stand on issues over the years. You were very much involved in trying to save the International Village or at least turn it into botanic gardens. Certainly we were. No, it wasn't to turn it into a botanic garden. It was to create a botanic garden within the village to suit the different houses that were there at the time and um, there were a lot of people involved with that yes but over the nine yes. 99 till 2005 I think it was now, now that fight was ultimately lost and it was turned into what was called Parkside Gardens or housing re- residential state, state yeah. right behind us yes. here now in 1FM yeah. because 1FM was of course I think it was the Maltese Pavilion, the the reception area of the International Village. Are you happy that there has been a botanic gardens uh, created down at Kyala? I am because our our, um, committee um, absolved to them. Uh, They were incorporated in 2011 from us. They'd been working with us a little bit too still because we had been told there would be a, a place of land allocated and that was the landfill out there. So we were told that and then after that um, the Australian Botanic Garden Group took over our role as um, an incorporated body, yes. So unfortunately you have to wrap up now, Pat. Any words of wisdom in your 80th year that uh, things you've learned that we can learn from? I think um, just one day at a time is, is my motto these days but... Um, just, I, I think, uh, loving one another and communicating and supporting with one another through thick and thin is the objective that I seem to be having most of my life now. And um, I just think keep on keeping on and we, we do not know what's ahead of us, but it's good to think about the good things. Absolutely. Happy yeah. memories. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me today, Pat. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed it, dear listener. Thank you also for joining us. Always appreciate your company. I'll be back next Friday to talk to you further. Don't forget you can catch up on any of these interviews on the 1FM podcast channel. Have a great weekend. Thanks again, Pat. Thank you, Terry. You've been listening to the Ship Life podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on SoundCloud. Find it on the 1FM Facebook page or search Ship Life Group on Facebook. Once approved, you'll be kept up to date with links to future shows. If you'd like to hear the show live, you can tune in to 98.5 on your radio or stream through fm985.com.au or the TuneIn app on your Android or iOS device. Friday mornings from 9am to midday.